As we open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach us your statutes. With our lips we declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies we delight as much as in all riches. Help us to meditate on your precepts and fix our eyes on your ways. Then we will delight in your statutes and we will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servants that we may live and keep your word. And open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your scriptures. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that in most of our Pew Bibles on page 674. Should be right around the middle of our Bibles between the books of Psalms and Ecclesiastes. And if you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad to have you here. We've been considering a series through the book of Proverbs, and we've come to Proverbs chapter 6. And so we're going to read together the first 19 verses, and that'll be the text uh, for this morning. So Proverbs chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger... If you are snared in the words of your mouth and caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. This is something of an interesting passage coming where it does in the midst of a lot of instructions about uh, how to deal with the wicked, uh, who to be on on guard for. Um, It's a bunch of things sort of gathered together here in this passage. You can even tell by the heading that's in our ESV that they're not sure exactly how to group all these things together. Um, The heading there is practical warnings. Um, You can say there are a lot of practical warnings in the book of 
Proverbs. I think that just marks that this section is sort of hard to summarize and bring together. It seems to go in a number of different directions. And so how should we understand these different warnings that are given here, these different characters that appear before us? Uh, Well, we're in a section of warnings about the wicked, and in these surrounding passages is all about adultery, uh, wisdom as a protection against and a safeguard against the forbidden woman or the adulteress. And I think what we're doing here in the middle of these warnings is being reminded that this is not, not the only thing that is a threat. It's not just those dangers that are around us, but also other dangers that come to us. Uh, the theme reverts again here, as one commentator pointed out, to wicked men and the danger they pose to the sun. The message here, I think, is these are people you need to be watching out for, um, that you don't become like them, uh, but that you also watch out for them, and wisdom will help you do both. Wisdom will help you keep from becoming the kinds of people we see in these passages, um, and wisdom will also protect you from them. Um, And it's wisdom to know who these people are and the dangers they pose uh, so that you can avoid them and be delivered from them. Uh, So we have follies to avoid here. We might also say you have fellows not to become. Uh, These are people that we are not to be, and that's what is coming across to the sun. Um, So who are these people that we should avoid becoming? Um, Well, I think the first one is we should avoid being the captured cosigner. Um, the captured cosigner is the first part of this text. We should avoid being the careless sluggard. That's the second person we encounter in this text. And finally, we should avoid being the crooked man. That's the last person we find in this text. And so that's what we want to think. These, these follies to avoid, these people we ought not to become, the captured cosigner, the careless sluggard, and the crooked man. These all pose threats to the sun. These are three pictures we're given in this passage, and they, they go from worse to worse. Um, one, one and two are really about folly. It's folly to be a captured cosigner. It's folly to be a careless sluggard. It's pure wickedness to be a crooked man. Um, and so these, these character, character pictures are going from worse to worse as we pass through this passage. The first two are follies that threaten your physical well-being. Uh, They threaten your future in the world if you are either of the first two. The last one, the crooked man, it threatens your very soul. It's a wickedness that puts you at odds with the Lord God. And that's why all three of these things are to be avoided. Um, The first one is, uh, I called it the captured cosigner. It's the son who offers pledge for someone else. It's a willingness to take on someone else's debt. And the sense here seems to be that the son has agreed to take on someone else's debt without putting a limit on it. Uh, People pointed out that when uh, Onesimus is sent back to Philemon by Paul, Paul says, I'll take all his past debts on me. Paul commits himself to his past debts, the ones that are owed. Paul does not commit himself to any future debts that he might arise. And what seems to be happening here is the son has been careless in taking on the credit for another person. And the reason they called this person a cosigner is that's maybe the closest thing we have in our culture uh, to something like this. We don't give our cloaks in pledge anymore, uh, but we do sometimes cosign loans for people. And when you cosign a loan, what are you doing? You're agreeing to take on that debt. 
you're agreeing that if the person who's taking on the debt can't pay, then the cosigner will pay, right? And so the cosigner becomes liable for the debts of the debtor. That's what the son is doing here. He's becoming liable for the debts of another person. But the reason that's foolish is because, first of all, it's a person he doesn't know, right? It's a stranger. It's someone he doesn't know well. Um, And it's without limit. And I think we could all see at a very basic level the foolishness of that kind of commitment. If you had a stranger approach you and say, will you co-sign my loan? And then he doesn't want to tell you how much the loan is for. You know it would be pretty dumb to co-sign for it. Um, Because once you do that, you're captured. That's the language the father uses. You've been ensnared by the words of your mouth. You've been caught by the words of your mouth. Those are pictures of prey that's been caught in a trap. You're entirely at the mercy of the debtor. Um, That debtor might say, well, now the debts are covered, I'm going to take off. And the creditor can go after the guy who has my pledge. Um, You see, you're in a very bad way if you've made this promise. And so what does the father tell his son to do if he's become a captured cosigner? He's to do everything he can to get out of it. He's to do everything he can to rectify the situation without delay. The principal advice he gives here in verse 3 is, save yourself. Save yourself. Uh, Do this, my son, save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Uh, Do whatever it takes. Go hasten, plead with him. Uh, This Hebrew word for hasten really has the sense of stamp yourself down. Wear yourself out with exertion. Uh, Don't go and stop until this situation has been resolved. Uh, Plead with him. Uh, That that word can even be pester him. Uh, Keep after him until either he releases you from your pledge or whether he pays it off. So the danger is averted. But whatever you do, go and make sure this is taken care of. Um, Plead with him. Hasten to him. Uh, Make sure that this is taken care of. Don't sleep until it's done. Right? Don't give your eyelids any slumber until you're out of this danger. Act like what you are, someone who's in a deadly trap. Right? That's the image he begins with, the father. That's the image he ends with. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Um, act like what you are, really trapped. Um, as one commentator put it, says, go, swallow your pride, storm or pester him until he either pays up or releases you. Uh, Do this with all speed. And we might ask the question, how do we understand this text in our day? Sounds like a good, solid, practical warning. Uh, Sounds like the kind of thing we maybe don't need to spend a whole lot of time on. Um, As a a pastor who knows you're supposed to preach Christ from a passage, you might wonder how you preach Christ from this practical warning. Um, But one thing that we can think about together is in our evening service we've been talking about the accomplishment of redemption and how Christ comes into the world to pay our debts, comes into the world to be the pledge for us. And we know that Jesus doesn't do anything in folly. He does everything in wisdom. And what that reminds us of is that he came into the world knowing exactly what he was guaranteeing. He came into the world knowing exactly what he was going to pledge for his people, um, knowing exactly what it would cost to pay our debts. 
Um, that's why when he comes and says, I'm willing to take on the infinite debt that all of my people have accrued, the, the wrath of God against sin, all of that debt that they've accrued, I'm coming into the world to pay. Why that wasn't a foolish thing for him to do. He knew exactly what he was doing when he committed to that. He knew exactly what he was doing. The New Testament is filled with reminders that Jesus knew what he was doing when he promised to pay our debts. Um, he knew that it would be, cause him who knew no sin to become sin for us. In his earthly life, he testified what that would cost him to pay what we owed. We read in Matthew 16, 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus knew what he'd come into the world to do, the debt he'd come into the world to settle. Paul says in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus comes in the world with full knowledge of what he's committing to and for whom he's committing it. Right? One of the follies that the son does is he commits to this for someone he doesn't know. It might not be folly to commit to this for a friend, uh, for a family member, for a loved one that you don't want to see fall into poverty. That's why this can be foolish. It doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, but Jesus knows exactly for whom he's committing himself. Um, it's not strangers. It's sinners. It's enemies. It's sinners and enemies who his father loves. That's why he's willing to come into the world and to do to take on that kind of debt, knowing what it's going to cost him because of who he's coming for. For strangers, for enemies who are loved by his father and loved by him so that he might save them. And why is Jesus willing to do this? Why is Jesus willing to come and to suffer like this, to pay for the debts of others? Um, because he knows that our future well-being is threatened. Why is it folly for the son to commit to these things? The father says, if you commit to something you can't pay, that threatens your whole future well-being. And Jesus came into the world not in the folly of the Son, but in the wisdom of the Son of God, saying their future is ruined if I don't intervene. Their future well-being will not be there unless I intervene. Jesus comes to save sinners from the foolishness into which we've sold ourselves. In the wisdom of God to save us. That's the real difference between the foolishness of this passage, and the wisdom of our Savior. The foolish son jeopardizes his future by his thoughtless commitment. Our wise Savior secures our future by his gracious commitment. Coming for enemies who were still sinners, dying for them that he might redeem them and bring them into his father's family. 
It's the glorious good news of Romans 5, 8 through 11. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Sometimes what Proverbs reveals to us in its folly and in its wisdom is showing the wisdom of God and the wisdom of Christ. Um, How he is everything that the foolish people are not. Um, And how we can learn from his example how to avoid the folly that we fall into and how we are saved from it and delivered from it by his hand. So this is a practical warning, uh, but it does show us a way to understand what the Lord has done. He was no captured cosigner. He voluntarily came to pay the debt we couldn't pay to secure our futures. May his name be glorified. Um, And so these practical warnings are helpful uh, for us. They're helpful in in avoiding this kind of danger to our future. And then we move to another story of danger, the story of the sluggard, the careless person who jeopardizes his future, not by making a foolish commitment, but by entirely failing to provide for his own future. It's a great word, isn't it? A sluggard. Um, There's nothing that quite so captures Uh, what a sluggard is than that that kind of word. It's really the opposite of someone who's diligent. It's the opposite of someone who exercises prudence. Um, And you'll notice the father does not address his son as a sluggard. Um, He's talking about sluggards as if the son is not one, but he's warning his son not to become like the sluggard um, and warning the sluggard as well. Uh, The father gives the sluggard, as a commentator said, commands to consider things that the sluggard ought to think about, um, and condemns his folly, tells him where his folly is going to lead. Um, So he gives him the commands to consider in verses 6 through 8, and then he gives him the condemnation for his folly in verses 9 through 11. What does the sluggard really need to do? He needs to consider God's world, uh, consider God's order, how God has set things up. And he says, you can learn a lot of wisdom from looking at the ants. I don't, know if, I don't know if you've ever looked at ants, boys and girls, and thought there's wisdom in how they, walk, how they work. Um, sometimes that's not what you're thinking about ants when you find them in your house particularly. Um, but there's, there's wisdom that we can learn from the created order. And what is the wisdom the Father says can be learned from ants? Is they're industrious. They work. And he says, you know, they work without a ruler or an official or a leader making them work. Um, They work without having to be told to work. Um, I've just been reading a story of from the Korean War, and there were Marines that are supposed to be entrenching, and one guy is not entrenching, and the colonel comes and is standing over him, and his buddy says, "The colonel's here." He says, "Yeah, right," and is not entrenching. The colonel is standing over him, then he gets to work entrenching. Uh, once he realizes that the colonel is, is standing right over him. Um, ants don't need that. They don't need a colonel standing over them. They, they work on their own. They're self-motivated. Ants are also working when they need to work. They're preparing for when they need to be prepared. 
That's what the Father says. They're working to prepare so that they have the bread they need when the time comes. Uh, They're good at doing that. They work and they are prepared. They make hay while the sun shines, as the saying goes. Right? And the Father says, you know, the sluggard could learn a lot from that. Ants don't need anyone to tell them what to do, and they make hay while the sun shines. What does the sluggard do? He keeps hitting the snooze button. That is, the, that is the key sort of feature of the sluggard. He's always hitting the snooze button on the alarm clock. He's always saying, five more minutes, ten more minutes, then I'm going to go out and do it. I know, I know, there's work to be done, I get it. But just give me five more minutes in bed, and then I'll get out and do it. So let me hit the snooze button one more time. Uh, one more time. I don't know if you've ever done that. Hit the snooze button so many times that you suddenly go, I'm late. Um, probably you're better sorts of people than I am. Um, but, you know, that's, that's what can happen. You, you just, well, just a few more minutes, a few more minutes, a few more minutes. That's what the father is saying to the sluggard. That's what you're like. You're always saying, just give me a little more sleep. I know, I, there's work to be done. I'll get out there. But a little more time, just a little more time. Um, probably kids understand this when their parents are trying to get them up to go to school. Um, just a little more time, just a little more time. I'll get there. Well, that's the problem with the sluggard. He's always telling himself, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm not refusing. But what happens to him? I like how one commentator put it. He doesn't commit himself to a refusal, but deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders. So by inches and minutes, his opportunity slips away. Um, What does he find? He's slept too long. Um, He's waited too long. The opportunity has passed by. The time for working is over. Um, The winter comes and he has no food stored up. And what will someone who does this find? Poverty will come upon you like a robber. This is not the kind of poverty where you just have a little bit in the bank and you just don't have a lot. Uh, This is total destitution. This is having nothing. Uh, Want will come in like an armed man. Want, again, is signifying all the necessities of life. They'll be gone. You'll have said to yourself, I was going to do it, I was going to do it, I was going to do it, and it never got done, and then you'll find it's now too late to do it. That's the danger of becoming a sluggard. Um, And the wisdom of God is to say, you need to do your work today. It's it's interesting that God is all about today. God is all about today and things spiritual. When is the day of salvation? It's not tomorrow, it's today. Why do we need to put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today? Because tomorrow is not guaranteed. You know who's a big fan of tomorrow? The devil is a big fan of tomorrow. Uh, But God's word is for today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to do the work that's given to us. We've all been given work in the world. That's how God has set up the world. Everyone has work to do. Whether you're a child or a student in the family, whether you're a parent, a spouse, a worker, we all have work that we've been given to do in the world. That's how God made the world. He made us to work. He made us giving us tasks 
to do. And he says we have to do the work we're given to do today. And there's a subtle danger, isn't there, in saying, I'm not refusing to do my work. I'll be a student tomorrow. Maybe you students have done that before. I'll do that homework tomorrow. And suddenly you realize, I've got to read 200 pages tonight because I don't have a tomorrow now. Um, You know, we can't do that in our work. Um, People joke about pastors working one day a week. But if I came to Saturday and thought, okay, now I'm going to think about what I'm going to say on Sunday, I'll never get the work done. But there is a danger in that, right? That thinking, I'm not refusing, just not right now. You know who's a big fan of that? The devil. Do it tomorrow, the devil's always saying. Remember some striking words from a pastor who said, if you're always passing over today and waiting for tomorrow, by your little procrastinations, you will be cheated without knowing it by the evil one, as his manner is. Give to me, he says, the present, and to God the future. Give to me your youth, and to God your old age. Give to me your pleasures, and to God your uselessness. How great is that danger that surrounds you? This is his character, and he will never cease his duplicity as long as he sees us pressing onward towards heaven from which he has fallen. Um, that pastor preached that in the year 381. Um, Things have not changed much in the last 1,641 years. The devil is always saying, tomorrow. There'll be time tomorrow. What does God say? There may be no tomorrow. Do it today. Care for your soul today. Do the work that's needful for today. Uh, That's the message James gives us in James 4, 13 and 14. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go in such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Let us hear the voice of the Lord in things earthly and do the work he's given us today. And let us certainly hear what he said to us in things spiritual and put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation today. Because tomorrow is guaranteed to none of us. And if we always are putting off by our little procrastinations, by inches and seconds, we'll lose the time. Let us not be like that. Let us not be the careless sluggard, and let us not be the crooked man. The last person in this text is one who is crooked in all of his ways. Um, He is to be avoided at all costs. We are to keep away from this crooked man. His picture is painted for us in verses 12 through 15. That's who the crooked man is. And his characteristics are given to us in verses 16 through 19. And we need wisdom for both. Uh, Many of us may not be the crooked man, but we could take on the crooked man's ways. Remember once when I was a teenager, my dad was uh, disciplining me for something I'd done wrong. I don't remember what I did wrong. Um... But he said, you know, you're acting like a jerk. And I was really offended at that. And I said, in my righteous indignation, I can't believe you called me a jerk. And he said, I didn't say you're a jerk. I said, you're acting like a jerk. You're not a jerk, so cut it out. 
It's one of the many arguments I lost with my father over the years. Um, but, you know, there is a difference, right? There's a difference between being a jerk and acting like a jerk. And the warning of this passage is there's a difference between being the crooked man and acting like the crooked man. Um, and we're not to do either. We're not to be this person and we're to avoid acting like this person. And that's the wisdom that is coming across to us in these verses. Who is the crooked man? Why do we need to keep away from him? He's wicked in all of his ways. Um, He's someone who is utterly wicked and utterly worthless. Um, He's called literally in Hebrew a man of Belial. Adam Belial is, is your Hebrew lesson for today. You know both words. Adam is the word for man. And Belial, you know, as one of the titles that Uh, Paul uses to describe the devil. Uh, Will you serve Christ or Belial? Um, The devil is utterly wicked. He's entirely worthless. He's committed to nothing but wickedness. That's the picture of the person that's given here. As one person said, one who is implacably wicked and agitates against all that is good. And you can see that in his external actions. What is the wicked man always doing? He winks with his eyes. He signals with his feet. He points with his finger. He goes about with crooked speech. Everything about him is crooked. You know, if he says something to you, it's not true. He's winking behind your back about things. He's signaling with his fingers. You know, he's one of these people who everything, there's something else going on. Um, Signaling with his fingers Reminded me of, you know, boxers sometimes will get so beat up, their eyes will be swollen and the referee will want to know, can you still see out of that eye? Can you keep fighting? And sometimes when a guy really wants to fight and can't see out of the eye, the referee will cover the good eye and then hold up three fingers. Can you see my fingers? And if his trainer wants to let him keep fighting, he'll tap him on the leg three times to tell him the guy's holding up three fingers. And he'll say three, and the referee will say, oh, he can still see, you can keep fighting. That's what the crooked man does. He's always, he's always signaling. He's pointing. He's doing other things. He's deceiving in every way he can. And where does that deception, where does that attitude come from? It's because his heart is utterly perverse. Right? We've said before that it's out of the heart that it flows the control center of life in Proverbs. It controls what you think and what you feel and what you do. This person is completely perverted in heart. Everything they think, everything they feel, everything they do is geared towards evil. He's devising evil all the time. And what is the evil the crooked man seeks to accomplish? What does he want more than anything else? It's to do what he says he wants in the last part of verse 14. Continually sowing discord. What does he want more than anything else? Just to make trouble. Just to break the peace. That's what the crooked man is all about. That's why we're to keep far from someone like this. And to avoid acting like this person. Because everything about him is exactly the kind of thing that the Lord hates. Verses 16 through 19 are related to the crooked man. There is character. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Uh, when, the, when, the, when Proverbs does this, there are six things, there are seven, it's a way of saying this list is specific but not exhaustive. 
there are many more kinds of characteristics that the Lord may hate that are abominations to him. But these particularly, this list is specific to the crooked man. And how do we understand these, these seven things that the Lord hates? How do we, we understand them? Well, first of all, we're told they're abominations to the Lord. They cause a reaction in God. Not just a reaction of hatred in him, but they offend his moral sensibility and cause him to be outraged. It's a serious business to do something that's an abomination to the Lord. And how can we summarize these seven things that are abominations to the Lord, the things that he hates? Well, we're helped by, again, seeing the structure of how this is put together. Everything in these seven revolves around the heart. Revolves around the heart. What kind of heart is that there? It's a heart in verse 18 that devises wicked plans. If we see that as the center and move out from the heart, we see what the heart does. What's on either, either side of what the heart does? It's the hands and the feet. What does the heart prompt? It prompts the activity of the hands and the feet. Hands that shed innocent blood, feet that make haste to run to evil. Then if we continue to expand the picture out, what else does God hate? From the heart that he hates, it moves out to hands and feet that do the things that he hates and to speech that he hates. Right? To a lying tongue, verse 17, and a mouth that breathes false witness. In verse 19. We're talking about the outflow of the heart here. It goes to the hands and the feet. It goes to the lips and to the tongue. To our speech. And where does it finally end? In haughty eyes. Proud eyes that are always looking down on everyone else. And again, where does it end? With one who sows discord among brothers. Pride is the ultimate anti-God state of mind. C.S. Lewis was exactly right when he said that. Pride is the anti-God state of mind. It's through pride that the devil became the devil. And if pride is the ultimate anti-God state of mind, what is the ultimate anti-God activity that one can be engaged in? It's sowing discord amongst brothers. Unleashing strife. Just, you know, pulling the pin out of the grenade and throwing it in, just watching as the discord happens, leaving others to clear up the mess and to triage the wounded. If pride is the ultimate anti-God state of mind, peace-breaking is the ultimate anti-God activity. And God hates it. It's It's an abomination to him. It causes an outrage in him when he sees people sowing discord among brothers or looking down with haughty eyes. And why does God hate this so much? He hates it so much because it's everything he's not. He is the God who is high and lifted up. Um, He is the God who is above all. But how has he revealed himself to us In his son, Jesus Christ. Is he a God that looks down on us? With haughty eyes? No, who is God at his heart? 
Jesus reveals who God is at his heart. He's meek. He's gentle. He's lowly of heart. And that plays out in his hands and his feet. Hands that were hands of healing and provision. Feet that walked straight forward down the path that led to the cross that would set us free. Hands and feet that didn't shed innocent blood, but where nails were driven by wicked men into his innocent hands and feet on the cross. Whose, whose lips never told a lie or bore false witness, who spoke the absolute truth and who was the truth incarnate. Who never looked down with haughty eyes on people he was far better than. But looked down with eyes of pitied people who couldn't save themselves. Who were scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And came to make peace between God and men. To reconcile us to God. You see why God hates these things? They're everything he's not. And God's people are not to be any of these things. None of these things should characterize the people of God. Right? Just as my dad said, you're not a jerk, stop acting like one. Christ would say, you're not a crooked person, you've been saved, stop acting like one. Stop doing things that crooked people do. You're not a crooked person. You've seen a better way in the Lord. And you know that these are the things the Lord hates. And there is a judgment for those who won't repent, who refuse to believe, who just embrace their crookedness. What is the fate that awaits the crooked man? Calamity will come upon him suddenly, and in a moment he will be broken beyond all healing. What did he love to do? He loved to go around breaking things. And what will happen to him in the end? The Lord will break him. Break him beyond healing. And it will be sudden. It's a warning to the crooked man and all who would follow the crooked man's ways. The Lord will judge. It's a call to repent if we're engaged in these sins. It's a call to confess them and to turn from them. Um, to be sorry for these sins. And to walk in the better way the Lord has shown us. May we listen to the wisdom of God's word. Um, and avoid acting like the crooked man. And act like the son of God who came into the world to save sinners. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, when we think about your salvation. And we think about who you are and how you've revealed yourself to us in Jesus Christ. How could we then seek after the ways that Jesus hates that are abomination to him? Help us, Father, by your wisdom and his help and the help of his spirit to abandon the paths of folly and the death to which they lead. And help us in faith to follow after our Lord, who shows us the path of wisdom and blessedness and life now and forevermore. We thank you for his redemption and salvation. And hear us, we pray in his name. Amen.